Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. In my opinion, <gasps> this play, this installment is the two towers of this trilogy. It's also, the boring stuff you have to get through to the to get to Return of the King. Is the best one out of oh, that trilogy. Oh, now you want to so. talk about Lord of the Rings lore when you played dumb the last time I, mean, I brought I don't it up. I know it, but I do get love the two out. towers. Okay. Two towers is fucking great. It's get so good. It's out. the only one that I like really enjoy and will watch over and over. I mean, it's all right. The extended version is okay, but we digress. <laughs> Burley Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock, and together we are Hamlet. And this week we're talking about the second part of King Henry the Fourth. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. Uh, so, quick note before we get going: you might have been expecting us to be talking about Thomas Middleton's The Witch this week, uh, but we had a guest for that, and she got sick. So Aww. we did some rearranging on the fly, uh, and we will get you to the witch and our guest soon, promise. Yeah. Um, but in the meantime, it's to Henry Four on four hours' notice. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah. That's how you got to do it. You just got to just plow yeah. through to Henry Four on four yep. hours' notice. That's that's what yep. happened. Yep. Um, so every week on this little podcast here, we usually discuss a different play by our favorite guy, William Maggie Smith Shakespeare, at what we like to call the 101 level. Yeah, that's introductory stuff. Everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes and some really cool shit that you get nowhere else like our opinions. Mm. But to get started... Like we do every week, oh, we're yeah. going to do the rhetorical device of the week Hell yeah. because we're word nerds. And so each week we draw a random rhetorical device from our handy dandy rhetorical device flashcards. Yes. For actors and scholars, knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize patterns in Shakespeare's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said. Basically, it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics. Draw a card, cards are. Ooh, I'm a card czar. Mm-hmm. I've been promoted. Yeah, All I right. was going to do card shark, but I was watching Downton Abbey. I bet you can't tell that I was watching Downton Abbey today. Oh, the day Maggie Smith. Had, <laughs> yeah. I had no idea. Uh-huh. Yeah, it yeah. was either that or Harry Potter, really. Yeah. I was, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah. They were talking about the czar, so oh, that's where nice, they came nice. from. Yep. Color. Pick um, a color. Pick a color. I would like the blue one that is sandwiched between the two purple ones. Blue sandwiched between the two purples. That's what I, that one right there. Great. That is assonance. Hmm. Yes, it's great because it has ass in it. Um, also, it's it's a, a pretty basic rhetorical device. Assonance, A-S-S-O-N-A-N-C-E. It is a repetition of similar vowel sounds preceded and followed by different consonants. Really, it's just a repetition of vowel sounds. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the whiniest of whiners 
Orsino from Twelfth Night. He says, Oh, it came o'er my ear like the sweet sound that breathes upon a bank of violets, stealing and giving odor. Enough, no more. Tis mm. not so sweet now as it was before. Yeah. So the I oh, like that oh, speech. oh, it's a no, it's a good speech. But he's literally ooing and owing and, uh, and moaning about his love. Um, and and uh, assonance is part of that. Um, I I like to tell younger students that. You know, where whereas alliteration, the repetition of consonant sounds gives us kind of rhythm and the percussion um, assonance is kind of like it's the emotion. It holds all of the it holds all of the heart in the vowels like um, no singer like Adele doesn't elongate consonant sounds. She elongates assonant sounds. Right. Um, so I like to think of it that way. Like that's where the emotions live is in those, is in those vowels. So you're welcome. Assonance. That was our rhetorical device this week. Ta-da. It's now time for your Burbage break with Master Master Hamlet. So this week I want to talk about the STC. What is it? Why is it cool? And that's pretty much it. Shakespeare Theater Company? Nope. Oh, the Short title catalog. Oh, great. Okay, the other yeah. STC. Yeah, the short title catalog, or sometimes the ESTC, the English short title catalog. Uh-huh. Um, so, what the short title catalog is, which BT dubs, you can find it at estc.bl.uk. So, the English short title catalog contains all the possible information that you might need to know about, like, half a million books published in English in England um, mostly in the British Isles, some in North America between 1473 with the uh, the arrival of the printing press in England and 1800. So was that like 327 years of early print items and it culls these items from the collections of the British Library, that's the BL in the UK, uh and like 2000 other libraries. So it's also, it's fully searchable. The website isn't um, beautiful, but it is functional. Uh, And you can go in and search kind of whatever you want. And it gives you all kinds of things. So for example, I just typed in Shakespeare for my search. um, And it came back with 2,828 results, which is a lot, but you know, Shakespeare. So I'm going to click on The Winter's Tale because I like it. Um, So it gives you the author, it gives you the full title, and the early modern titles are often very long. So this one is The Winter's Tale, a tragedy by Shakespeare, as performed at the Theatre Royal Covent Garden, regulated from the prompt book, with permission of the managers by Mr. Younter, prompter. An introduction and notes critical and illustrative are added by the authors of The Dramatic Censor. So this version of The Winter's Tale was published in London. Uh, It was printed for John Bell near Exeter Exchange in the Strand, and C. Etherington at York in 1773. Um, the, the entry will often also give you the physical description of the book. So, you know, whether it's a quarto, folio, octavo, duodecimo, whatever, um, tell you how many leaves are in there. 
they'll give you some notes if there's any sort of interesting stuff about this copy it'll tell you the genre um if there's any other associated names like this one had a bunch of printers and covent garden it lists those and then it tells you and this is maybe one of the most fantastic parts of the stc um it tells you who owns copies who owns surviving copies and where they are so like there's only one of this one it's at the folder in washington dc um however perhaps we're interested in um the second part of henry the fourth maybe that's what we're interested in so we're nah, gonna type i'm in. not interested in that one that one's crap <laughs> we're gonna find that one real fast so we find we find the entry for the second part of king henry the fourth which is titled The Second Part of Henry IV, Continuing to His Death and Coronation of Henry V, with the humors of Sir John Falstaff and Swaggering Pistol, as it hath been sundry times publicly acted by the Right Honorable the Lord Chamberlain, his servants, written by William Shakespeare. And then it gives you um, the uniform title, which is King Henry IV, Part Two, and the variant title, which is Henry IV, Part Two, or Second Part of Henry IV, so the second part of Henry IV was printed in 1600 in London by Valentine Sims for Andrew Wise and William Aspley. Uh, it is 88 pages long. It's a quarto. And then the general notes for this one are really interesting. So it says, first of all, partly in verse. Second, the printer's name is from the STC, the short title catalog. It lists a whole bunch of page signatures, which we haven't, I think, talked about what those are on this pod. It's not important. Don't worry about it. Uh, the running title reads the second part of Henry IV. The last leaf of the quarto is blank. Um, and then this is super interesting. I'm going to talk about it a little bit later. It's a reissue with part of it canceled by new leaves restoring a missing scene. I'm going to talk about that after the summary. It's very interesting. Then there's some more notes about this particular copy. Um, it gives some citations. It tells you where you can find some microfilm of it. Then it has person as subject, Henry IV, King of England, 1367 to 1413, drama, early works to 1800. And then tells you, of course, where you can find all of these things. So there are five, four, there are four copies in England, two at the British Library, one at Trinity College at Cambridge, and one at the Bodleian in uh, Oxford. And then there are about eight copies in North America. One is at Dartmouth, two are at the Folger, one is at Harvard, three at the Huntington, and then private collections, which is always interesting. Uh, and then it gives links to four digital copies at least one of which is open source well i don't know that open source is the right word but at least one uh is not behind a paywall so any rando person in the world can get in and click on that and see it the ones that are digitized for ebo or early english books online those are behind a paywall and you have to have a subscription to that usually through your university um, but the folger digital image collections are accessible to the world uh so that's a quick and dirty of what the stc is slash does it's just it's a wealth of knowledge um also it's fucking free which is the best like you don't have to pay for this it's such a phenomenal resource that you don't have to pay for 
you can just Google short title catalog and it'll come up, but also it's estc.bl.uk. Check it out, play around, love it, learn it, live it. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I love the STC. When was the last time you were in the STC? Never. Never? Not even in grad school? Nope. Wow. Really? Yeah. Not even in textual culture when we had to do that STC project? Oh, well, then I probably did it then. <laughs> okay. But, like, I have no memory of that. Mm, I, I have no STC. memory of that class generally. Wow. <laughs> I was Sorry, in the STC last week for oh. some shit. I love it. love the yeah. STC. So. Yeah, I mean, it's apparently it's real awesome. It's so great. <laughs> Fucking get in there. Yeah. Okay. All right. Your turn. That was your Burbage break from Master, Master, Hamlet. And by that sound, we know we are about to talk about a history play, which means we need a little bit of a family tree. If you're looking for a more extensive version of a family tree for this play, go back and listen to the first, you know, 10, 15 minutes of our Henry IV Part One episode, because I'm not going to go into all of that. Um, but just a brief refresher of how all of these people fit together in the larger picture of, of the Shakespeare history plays um, and, you know, future War of the Roses. Uh, this is strictly Plantagenet territory. These people are all still one family. They haven't broken off into Lancasters and Yorks yet. All of this series precedes the War of the Roses. Primogeniture is still a thing. Um, even right now in 2019, primogeniture is basically still a thing. Um, so Henry Bolingbroke took the throne from Richard II, even though Richard had named Edmund Mortimer, who was closer in the line of succession. He named Edmund Mortimer as his heir, and that was some shady shit, and Henry knows it, and we see sort of how that plays out in this play. Um, in the first part of Henry IV, you might remember that the Percy family tried to restore Mortimer to the throne. It didn't work. Hotspur died. A bunch of other people died. Henry is still king, and this is the play where he dies, and Hal becomes Henry V, one of the most celebrated kings in English history. So keep in mind that up until the tail end of Henry IV Part I, Hal has not exactly been acting like a future monarch. Um, he's been slumming it with thieves and whores in Eastcheap, and he still kind of does that, only a little with a little less luster in this play. <laughs> so so that's really that's really like where we're at. It's it's the same timeline of folks beginning with Richard II and kind of moving forward through time. So we always like to begin our summaries and that section of our this section of our podcast with a five-word unhelpful title. And my original one for this was a little too on the nose, so I needed to make it a little <laughs> more obscure. Uh, so mine is Kate Percy yells at men. Yeah, she's not in the summary. No, she's not. But I mean, now she is. She yeah. all this all you need to know about her is that That's she's true. mad that Hotspur died, and she yells yep. at her father in law. That's all you gotta I, know. She's got one scene, which is why she's not in the summary. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Mine is crowns aren't good for napping. You don't say. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, don't, a little bit. Maybe a little bit heavy. Maybe don't wear your crown while you're napping. But that leads to all kinds of problems. So yeah. anyway, um, hey, Aubrey, why is this play so goddamn popular? It's not. Yeah, it's it's not. not. This play it is. It should be. Should it? 
this one's way better than the first part. Way better. Uh, I disagree. I mean, I read everything you've written here and I'm like, "Mm, you're wrong, though. I disagree so hard. Yeah, you and the rest of the world. But like, that's because you love this shit and I don't love this shit. And therefore I am being objective and therefore I am right and you are wrong. I love you. Keep talking. (laughs) (laughs) Even Shakespeare admits that this is not the best installment in the series in an epilogue at the end of this play. Even he is like, "Eh, sorry, y'all. Yep. Come back for Henry V because it's way better. Yep. Uh, It's got a couple of funny tavern scenes. It's got like this heartbreaking scene between Hal and Falstaff. Um, And beyond that, I just don't think it's terribly necessary. (laughs) You will rarely see this play in isolation at regional theaters. Uh, It either it gets conflated with part one, um, which is the I, I recently found out that's what the Tom Hanks production in L.A. did. They conflated parts one and two. Um, I don't know why I didn't know that before, but yeah. Um, Or they run it in rep with part one and Merry Wives, uh, just like they did at OSF a couple of years ago. They do them all together. So it's kind of like this is like this is the spinach you got to eat before you get your ice cream, you know. Um, But nobody wants to sit through it without something more fun to wash it down unless you're Jess Hamlet. So like you tell me then why it's only one of the three that I You tell me why it should be more popular. Uh, Because it has less Falstaff in it. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Frankly. The Falstaff scenes are shorter and smaller and farther between and well, that might not actually be true. I wrote most of them out of the summary because they're not super important. I don't know, this one's better. <laughs> For someone who doesn't like the political machinations, this play That's is true. like full of them. That is true. That is that is true. This is it's very politically machinating. Anyway, whatever. Let's get let's move through it and then yep. we can let our audience decide and not yeah. let them listen to us bicker because that's yep. not exciting for anyone. <laughs> okay, let's talk Dramatis Personae, but only the really important ones. Alrighty. So we're gonna start with motherfucking Morton. Morton. Who is on the side of the rebellion against King Henry. He has 79 lines in the play and he is not important at all, but apparently he's important enough to be the only example of whatever fucking piece of rhetoric he uses for the flashcards. And also he can fuck all the way off forever. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, then there's also King Henry IV, the King of England, <laughs> the Archbishop of York, whose name is Richard Scroop. There's Falstaff, a jolly old rogue who's really starting to feel his age now. Also the Chief Justice, who is in charge of justice. That's Shallow, right? Chief Justice Shallow? No. Mm-mm. Wrong Chief Justice. Character. Oh, this is the Lord Chief Justice. Yeah. Oh, that guy. Okay, yes. Yeah, that oh, guy. Sorry, sorry. Uh, he's in the actual court, not the Provincial Justice Shallow. No. Who uh, then there's didn't make it into the summary. Great. Uh, there's also Northumberland, the leader of the rebellion against King Henry, a.k.a. Hotspur's dad. We have Mistress Quickly, who is a tavern hostess. We have Hal, the heir to the king, the throne of England. Mm. Poins is a friend to both Hal and Falstaff. Then we have a character with one of the best names of all time, Doll Tearsheet, a local whore. Uh, we have Westmoreland, who is a royalist on the side of King Henry. Mm-hmm. And then we've got Prince John, Hal's younger brother. Yeah. And also a bunch of characters who you've heard of probably like Shallow and Silence and Bardolph and Pistol, who didn't make it into the summary. So we're not doing them here. Sorry about yeah. it. They're just they're just series regulars at this point. 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know what that means. It's summary time. We will now summarize two Henry four for you in a segment that this week we are calling motherfucking Morton. Great. I mean, I should probably (laughs) stop and maybe explain (laughs) this. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. So once upon a time, uh, some number of a long time ago, a while we, ago, yeah, we, you know, we were doing the rhetorical device of the week and I don't even remember what device it was, but I was like, oh, I bet it's going to be the example is from whatever this really good, maybe it was, uh, 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 pleonasm. Was it pleonasm? And I was like, it'll, it's Polonius. Yeah. And then yeah, yeah, it yeah. wasn't Polonius. Yeah. And it was motherfucking Morton. I was like, who the fuck is Morton? And I got yeah. real upset about that it. That almost derailed the entire episode. Yes. But <laughs> now it's derailing this one. Um, uh, Morton. Yeah. Because when I opened uh, when I opened my notes to write the summary today, it was like, Morton comes in with news. And I was like, motherfucking Morton. Um, so there you go. There it is. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, Good talk. Timer? Back to the yep. summary. <laughs> yep. Timer. 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 Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. All right. Yep. Sorry about that. Noise. I'm ready. My shit was okay. So, ba boom. So the play opens immediately after the action of the first part ends. Like immediately, motherfucking Morton reports Henry the Fourth's victory over Northumberland's insurrection and also Hotspur's death. Northumberland vows his revenge and plans to team up with the Archbishop of York to get his. Falstaff bickers with the chief, chief justice about his life of dissolution, and then he realizes that he is super duper broke and writes to his friends for some money. The Archbishop and his confederates plan to raise popular support for their resistance against the king. Act two, Mistress Quickly tries to have Falstaff arrested for not paying his debts, but Falstaff is slippery and evades capture, and he gets Mistress Quickly to invite him to dinner and lend him some more money, because he's a crafty bugger. Hal is feeling some kind of way about preferring the company of his lower-class friends. Falstaff has insulted Poins, and so Poins and Hal decide to spy on Falstaff while he has dinner with the whore doll tear sheet and see if they can get some fodder to give Falstaff some comeuppance later. Falstaff and Doll trade insults, and it's adorable. Poins and Hal listen to Falstaff insult them to Doll, and they hop out of their hiding place, and Falstaff tries to talk himself out of trouble again. A summons arrives for Hal, and he sets off to join the king. Back in the north, Northumberland's wife and Hotspur's widow, a.k.a. Kate Percy, convince Northumberland to flee to Scotland and wait for the outcome of the rebellion in safety in Scotland. In Act 3, Henry IV has insomnia. He's getting worried because he got the throne by usurpation, and now he thinks that that might happen to him. Uh, Also, he's getting old and sick, and as the Magic 8-Ball might say, the outlook is grim. In Gloucestershire. Gloucestershire? Yeah, but Gloucestershire is more fun to say. (laughs) In in Gloucestershire, Falstaff is recruiting soldiers, and it's pretty funny because all the available soldiers are super ill-suited for a military life. Mm -hmm. Act four, the rebels find out that Northumberland isn't joining them again, and they mad. Westmoreland arrives on behalf of Prince John, who's leading the king's army, and asks them to list their grievances. When the archbishop provides a list of reasons for rebellion, Westmoreland is not impressed. The rebels get concerned about their chances of success, but the archbishop convinces them that the king is old and feeble, and he doesn't stand much of a chance against their rebellion. They go to meet with Prince John, who accuses the archbishop of defying God's order 
workers by raising a rebellion against their anointed ruler. Both armies disband when Prince John promises to take the rebels' concerns to the king. And then Prince John arrests all the rebels instead because he's that bitch. Then he goes off to visit his sick dad. Back at court, King Henry just really wants to go on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land like he's wanted to do since the first part of Henry IV. Uh, But then he's real old and sick and sad, and he gets really concerned about Hal's ability to take over the kingdom when he dies. Westmoreland tells the king that the rebels have been defeated for good this time. The king has a fit, and and the princes realize he's going to die, like probably in the next scene. Henry goes to take a nap, and Hal goes to check on him, and he has this whole meditation about the crown lying next to Henry. Henry is sleeping really, really soundly, so much so that Hal thinks Henry has died. So he takes the crown and puts it on, and then Henry wakes up and catches him with the crown on, and he gets real mad about it, and then he forgives Hal about it, and he offers some advice about ruling the country, and then he goes into the next room to die, and then he dies. (sighs) Act four is long. In Act 5, everybody's mourning King Henry. Hal promises everyone that he will be a good king. Falstaff and his friends hear the news that Hal is now king, and they rush off to court to join him because they're like, it's our time, bitches. Um, But then Hal refuses to acknowledge Falstaff and his old friends, and it's kind of sad, I guess, if you feel bad for Falstaff, but like, I don't. It's very sad. And I'm like, yeah, fuck you, Falstaff. It's time to get yours. Um, The Chief Justice arrests all of them, the Falstaff and all of his friends. They get arrested. Then there's an epilogue that apologizes apologizes for this play and promises to write another one telling the story of the war in France and Hal's marriage to Princess Catherine, which spoiler alert is exactly what Henry V is about. The end. Yeah. Tell me again why you think this one is better. Uh, most because of act four. I really like act four of this play. And also no, act four is good. Cause Falstaff gets arrested and also because Falstaff gets fucked off. And also because Hal is like, nah, bitch, we done here. And then also because Falstaff dies in the next one. I don't like Falstaff. I really don't like Falstaff. I don't find him funny or amusing in any kind of way. Wow. Yeah. Sorry about it. (sighs) It's okay. I can love him enough for both of us. It's fine. You're going to have to (laughs) because I sure as shit won't. Okay, so tell us some uh, cool shit about this text, Jess. <sighs> okay, so the textual history of this play is fucking wild. Um, as you heard a little bit about in the Bourbon Trake when I read some shit from the STC. Um, so there are at least two different texts, or maybe even three, um, and no single text is fully authoritative. So the first version, the Quarto, appeared in 1600, which is probably like a year or two or maybe three after it was written. We don't, you know, know exactly when, but we're like 1597, 1598 probably is about when the play was written. So the Quarto is maybe the most reliable text, but also maybe not because it's full of errors. The 1600 Quarto was also printed twice or maybe maybe not printed twice. Maybe there were corrections like in the middle of the print run. Um, and the versions differ from each other. So we call them QA and QB. So Quarto A and Quarto B of the first Quarto, which is, I think the only text that we do this with like Faustus is a text and B text, but not QA and QB. It's just A and B. Um, I've never heard this designation for any other play. So QB adds an additional scene at the beginning of Act 3 and introduces other changes uh, that resulted from resetting the type to include that scene. And 
scholars generally think that perhaps this happened like halfway through the print run since there are about equal number equal surviving numbers of qa and qb i think there's 10 of qa and 11 of qb or maybe it's the other way around but it's like roughly equal so then we have the 1623 folio text which includes eight new passages that weren't in qa or qb it also adds stage directions clarifies existing stage directions regularizes speech prefixes and otherwise just like tidies up the text um for a long time editors thought that this meant that the folio text was set from a playhouse prompt book but the editor of the arden three jim bowman who by the way is a friend of a friend of the pod um says that this practice is actually more indicative of normal scribal practices of preparing a text for print Moreover, the folio text bears the marks of an unusual level of scribal interference in that it sanitizes some profanity and regularizes a lot of spelling and grammar. So with all these different versions, how do we pick a text to base an edition on? And then what are the goals of such an edition? I was talking, I taught Faustus this week in my Britlet class. Um, and one of my students was like, how, how do we choose which text and i was like well that's an excellent question and there's no good answer but the first answer is like what do you want your text to do right so with with henry with two henry four does an editor want to create a text that bears the most resemblance to what audiences would have seen in 1598-1599 or does an editor want to create a text that gives a reader you know like the most representative version of all three texts like they usually do with hamlet you know how hamlet is um, well, you know, Aubrey knows, but hey, readers <laughs> or listeners, you're not reading this podcast. Hey, listeners, um, often, most often with Hamlet, the text you're getting is uh, a conflation of all three texts. An editor will go through and pick and choose whatever bits they like best and, and try to give you the best version that incorporates stuff from all three texts. So how does an editor pick and choose and privilege, I think is the question. And the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> um, having never edited a text and having not yet been able to work with someone on their editing of a text, I can't answer these questions. But I think they're important questions to ask. You know, as I was saying to my students this week, the, the first question you want to ask is, what is the purpose? What is this text for? Is this text for performance? Is this text for a reader? What kind of reader? You know, like the Arden texts um, get used for performances a lot, but I think their their editorial goal, the series goal, is academic, right? Like these are not these are not texts that are edited for actors, right? Specifically, even though we know that plenty of theater companies use these as their scripts. Um, including the American Shakespeare Center. This is the version that they like. So I don't know. I mean, it's a bigger conversation about editing and editing practices that I, you know, I'm not a part of because that's not where my work has taken me yet. It will someday. I really want to edit something. Somebody, if you need a research assistant on your editing project, hit me up. I want to be involved. I don't know, man. Uh, it's it's wild. What I would, I guess, what I'm saying is there are lots of versions of this text in particular um, mm. that are. Yeah. It's. I think it's interesting. And if you are trying to choose a text of anything, the first question that you should ask is, "What is the purpose?" Thank that's what you. I have to say. Yeah. You you get to talk now. Great. Um, I don't have too much to say, but um, 
from the production side, you know, this, like many history plays, jumps from world to world. Um, you get to do some kind of fun and interesting world building in this play. You get to revisit East Cheap, so, you know, tavern, slummy part of London. Uh, you get, of course, the Royal Court. You get Northumberland's residence in the north. You get rural like country bumpkin Gloucestershire so that's that's a lot of world building uh, on the plus side of that there are a lot of fun little side characters that pop up to aid you in that world building particularly in the Gloucestershire scenes like with shallow and bull calf and moldy and all the wonderfully and aptly named little bit characters that are fun to bring to life you get some I had forgotten until I, we read through the summary and uh, I had forgotten that there are some really well-known and well-used quotes from this play that people don't know are from this play. In particular, uh, we have heard the chimes at midnight, which chimes at midnight, that phrase like went on to spur, who was it, Orson Welles's Orson like, Welles. big opus of yeah. some kind of a film. Yeah, yeah it, it's it was a it's it's a Falstaff, Falstaff thing, scenes, right? Pretty yeah. much from yeah. from these plays. It's, it's not Falstaff stuff. Not great. Didn't love it. <laughs> didn't yeah. didn't have a great time. Also, like the footage that survives um, is really damaged. So there's a lot of like weird visual yeah. stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know, if you're interested, it's part of the Criterion Collection. You can find it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I thought it was a waste of time. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. So we have heard the chimes at midnight. You may also have heard the phrase "uneasy lies the head that wears the crown," or some people sort of bastardize that. They say "heavy lies the head that wears the crown." Um, but it is uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. That's a pretty common phrase. Um, one of my personal favorites that's not like well known by anybody, but it's in this play and Mistress Quickly says it. She says, do me, do me, do me your offices. <laughs> She's got a fantastic monologue uh, in, in this play where she just makes all kinds of sexual innuendo accidentally and it's glorious. So that's fun. You know, despite the fact that Kate Percy only gets one scene, you know, as opposed to the two that she gets in One Henry Four. Um, she also is a great part. She has, I mean, that one speech that she has is awesome. So, like, yas, Kate Percy, she's bomb. Um, there are some great female roles in this play that traverse all of the social strata. You've got Mistress Quickly, who really comes into her own in this part of the series. Doll Tearsheet, her little sidekick. Uh, and then you got Kate Percy. And my thing, and maybe maybe why I hate this play so much, is because the fun stuff between Hal and Falstaff comes to an end. Jess finds this a joyous occasion. I do not. <laughs> um, so here's my little soapbox about that. And it's not a large soapbox, but I will say this. If you haven't allowed your Falstaff and your Hal to develop a bond from part one, you're fucked. This is where all of that work pays off. This is where, like, Hal really has to make good on the promise that he made at the beginning of 1 Henry IV when he says, when this loose behavior I throw off and pay the debt I never promised, he he does it. It's, it's crunch time once he's been uh, crowned. And there's a, you know, the scene where he says to Falstaff, I know thee not, old man. And he basically dresses him down for... A good minute or two about how terrible he is and how he doesn't know him anymore. And to me, that is heartbreaking. And to Falstaff, it is literally heartbreaking because he never recovers and he goes off and 
Henry V then dies from a broken heart. Um, at least that's what they say. So also in this play, you start to see the deterioration of that relationship even before that pivotal moment in Act 5. There are a couple of scenes where Hal sort of half-heartedly tries to revive the tavern shenanigans, like where he plays the prank with points. Um, but they are fewer and farther between. It's not the same. Like you can't, they can't like revive it. And you start to see more scenes where Hal is more often at court Falstaff is more often without Hal, wherever he's at, either in the taverns or uh, in Gloucestershire. So you see them in isolation without each other. They're drifting apart um, visually on stage. You just don't see them together. And all of that works toward, toward that moment at the end. So do your homework, lay the groundwork in part one, and then let it pay off and watch people cry in part two. Unless you're Jess Hamlet, who is heartless. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. I I'm cry. Heartless. I that always is, cry. It that is what all of my friends me. say about me is, oh, that Jess Hamlet, she's heartless. Yeah. You know, you're one of my friends. You've said uh, yes. this about me many a time. So You're a heartless bitch. It's true. It's true. Stone cold murder. Only when it comes to Falstaff. I, you know, <laughs> I guess. I mean, you've got a big heart other times, mm. I guess. <laughs> Very generous, I'm sure. Um. Yeah. Also, uh, just think about that epilogue at the end, like how you want to deal with that, yeah. bruh. Can I can I read it? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there Let's are two different it. versions because there are two different versions of the text. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Arden includes both of them, but I'm just gonna read the second one because it's way more in line with what we said in the summary. And I'm actually also only going to read the last half of it. So one word more, I beseech you, if you be not too much cloyed with fat meat, our humble author will continue the story with Sir John in it and make you marry with fair Catherine of France, where, for anything I know, Falstaff shall die of a sweat unless already he be killed with your hard opinions. For Old Castle died martyr, and this is not the man. My tongue is weary, where my legs are too, I bid you good night. And wow. then dances a jig. So that is not, what is the other one? What's the other version of this from the other text? Because that is, I've seen this play maybe twice okay. in performance, and that is not the epilogue that I heard. All right, so here's the other one. First my fear, then my curtsy, last my speech. My fear is your displeasure, my curtsy, my duty, and my speech to beg your pardons. If you look for a good speech now, you undo me. For what I have to say is of mine own making, and what indeed I should say I will, I doubt, prove mine own marring. But to the purpose, and so to the venture. Be it known to you, as it is as it is very well, I was lately here in the end of a displeasing play to pray your patience for it, and to promise you a better. I meant indeed to pay you with this, which, if like an ill venture it come unluckily home, I break, and you, my gentle creditors, lose. Here I promised you I would be, and here I commit my body to your mercies. Bait me some, and I will pay you some, and, as most debtors do, promise you infinitely. And so I kneel down before you, but indeed to pray for the queen hmm that is also yeah. not what i heard yeah i would imagine you've probably heard some kind of conflation of the both of those maybe um i just don't remember the the ref, the reference to old castle and martyrdom before well i imagine that that would get cut in performance maybe. because yeah. no no modern audience is gonna be like oh yes mm, right. john old castle yes uh, so i'm familiar with this yeah uh, right. <laughs> hey listeners if you don't know what we're talking about go listen to episode 18 in season one which is the first part of henry the fourth where we do talk about the old castle stuff right. so i mean you know my my question really is just do you stage it do you cut it entirely you know and just let the play end where it mm-hmm. ends or like 
and who and then who delivers it you know yeah. well this is you know this is one of the only like two plays maybe three that has both a prologue and an epilogue mm-hmm. um henry eight is another one and maybe there's a third and the the prologue is given to uh alleg- an allegorical embodiment of rumor um, right i remember that yeah, yeah but the the epilogue is just it's called epilogue right so i mean i don't know who have you got on stage at the end of act five and you know is that is it hal is it falstaff yeah. is it dead I mean, king henry like yes what, what choice does your production want to make and what story yeah. do you want to tell and also i would cut the epilogue frankly yeah i might keep the prologue but i, I think i'd cut the epilogue it just i i have trouble with epilogues unless mm-hmm. they're rosalind's frankly right. hers <laughs> is so great yeah because it's cute it's not the fashion to yeah. see the lady the epilogue it is not so those were you know those were really my only thoughts just some stuff to think about um, right. I'm not sure that there's really like a staging buck basket for this no. one, like something that's particularly no. difficult. I, I don't there think there aren't so. even um, battles in this one. It's just a bunch yeah, of like no. standing around talking. Yeah, they talk about the battles, just maybe, like in King John. Like there's barely anything. Yeah, I guess yeah. This and King John are maybe the only ones that don't have. Yeah, uh, Richard too maybe doesn't have any combat. Yeah, no, except it, yeah. but you you got to kill Richard at the end. So right. There's that. Yeah. Anyway. Any well, who's all. Should we um, play a game? Yeah, we shall. Okay. <laughs> so what are we doing for a game this week, Obs? Uh, I don't know how we didn't think of this before. Yeah. But we're going to play a, round, a couple of rounds of Fuck, Marry, or Kill. <laughs> and we're going to use characters from the play. Yep. Uh, okay, so do you want to go first or should I? Uh, I'll go because... You know we're going to be different. Great. So let's start with King Henry uh-huh. and Hal and uh-huh. Prince John, right? The family. Uh-huh. Okay. So I would... <laughs> this might not surprise you. I would fuck Prince John, mm-hmm. and I would marry King Henry, and I would kill Hal. Oh, girl. Okay. <laughs> I wish everyone could have just seen your face. <laughs> It was disgust and like I can't believe the choices in my life that I have made to have such a horrific friend as Jess Hamlet who is wrong about Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> like everybody the has their kinks. The derision that was in your gaze. I'm sorry. But are That's you surprised just... that I would fuck Prince John? Like does that surprise you at all? No. Yeah, like he's my type. Yeah, I, I mean, totally I was gonna say fuck Prince John too because right. in my brain I was like, he just betrayed everybody in this play. Like, there's no way we could have any kind of longevity with that nope. little fucker. Mm-mm. He's deceitful, but he might be a good roll in the hay. This is what I'm saying. So, so yeah, I'm gonna agree with you. Mm-hmm. Fuck king fuck prince john yeah um definitely i'm not into the old dudes myself (laughs) so i would just put henry four out of his misery and marry the hell out of hal yeah you have such a boner for Hal. i do i have such a boner for him i know he's my favorite no uh okay uh all right fuck mary kill east cheap version okay okay I'm going to start with some of the supplementary characters and not our favorite fat man, just to make it a little more fun. Okay. So, fuck, marry, kill between Bardolph, 
pistol and uh-huh. points. Okay. Oh, I'd go oh, first. Okay. <laughs> Great. Uh, I would fuck points for sure. I think mm-hmm. mostly for the same reasons as I would fuck Prince John. Okay. Um, mm, mm, kill Bardolph because mm-hmm. his liver is probably <laughs> distended anyway. And marry Pistol. I mean, he proves that he's good marriage sure. material. He ends sure. up marrying Mr. Squiggly later. That's true. It's true. Um, okay. So similar, but again, key differences. I would mm-hmm. also kill Bardolph. Like mm-hmm. nobody needs him here. Um, <laughs> but... I would marry Poins and fuck Pistol because mm. I think Poins seems like more fun and mm. I want to spend a lifetime having fun. Oh, I also want to spend a lifetime having sex, but. Great. Yeah. No, I get that. That's not the game. So I get that. Yeah, yeah. I totally get that. Um, okay. So fuck, marry, kill, mistress quickly, doll tear sheet, mm. Kate Piercy. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. So okay. I think okay. I think I would marry Kate Percy. Um I think I would fuck doll and I think I would kill Mistress Quickly. That's what I think I would do. Oh, I don't want to kill Mistress Quickly. I mean, I don't want to either, but that's the game. <sighs> you right. have to make the hard choices. Oh man, that's tough. I think uh for some key differences i think i would fuck kate percy yeah you would i yeah i would yeah you would yeah i would i know you would you freak uh, um she's fiery i like it i know um, you do i know what i like. would marry mistress quickly because yeah, she would definitely would. keep me fed yeah she would <laughs> And then I would just kill Doll because she's probably yeah. disease ridden anyway. Oh, good point. Good point. Good point. She's got the Sif. You know yeah. she has. Oh, she's the French disease. Yeah. Which is yeah. the Sif. Okay. Yeah. Um, any Who we have left to put with false stuff? Great. Okay. Fuck, Mary, kill. Between. Okay. Okay. Let's do the okay. old old guy version. All right, okay. Or old guy slash Gloucestershire version. Okay. Um, fuck, Mary, kill. Between false staff, shallow. Ugh. And and uh, bull calf, bull calf, isn't wasn't it bull calf? Yeah, he's bull calf. Is one of the recruits that Falstaff. Yeah, no, I mean I know who he is. I'm just. I mean I can't think of anybody else. I was gonna say Northumberland, Morton. Fuck Morton. Ooh, yeah, okay. You know that I would kill Morton. Okay, no, no, Northumberland is good. Okay, okay. Yeah. So let's do fuck Mary kill between Shallow Falstaff and Northumberland. Okay, so I would kill Falstaff, Obs. Um, I think I would, oh, oh, uh, uh, I think I would have to marry Northumberland and fuck Shallow. Is that what we said? Or did we say Silence? No, we said Shallow. Okay. Yeah, I think I would fuck or, Shallow. Is Silence the one that makes the pervy jokes about? No, because he's silent. Oh, right. <laughs> silence says nothing. Oh, that's right. That, yeah, it's Shallow who talks about his days of old with some yeah. old whore. Yeah, it's right. Yeah, yeah that's shallow. okay. I would shallow's the one who's heard the chimes at midnight with Falstaff. Right. Yes. Yeah. I would fuck Northumberland because he's probably really vigorous still for mm. despite his age. Yeah, probably. I would kill Shallow because yeah, he's would. like one foot in the grave already, and I would marry yeah. Falstaff. I know you like would. you because he likes to have fun. Yeah. Lo- <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's what okay. I would do. 
predictable all around. Yeah. This was fun, though, and I think we need to, like, retroactively do this for every play. Oh, my God, yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we do. It'll be a special episode. The <laughs> Fuck, Mary Kill episode. Maybe over the summer. One of our minisodes. Oh, my God. Yep. <laughs> Just yeah. half an hour of Fuck, Mary Kill with all of the characters in the game. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> Can we please? Yeah, we'll do oh, it. Good times. Good okay. times. All right. Great. Should Moving on goss? to some gossip. Yeah. Um... So some exciting news coming out of my neck of the woods um, from the American Shakespeare Center. Uh, We had our season announcement and a little bit of renaming and rebranding the seasons as we go Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So what we're now calling the summer festival season uh, is going to be Julius Caesar, Antony Cleopatra, and Caesar and Cleopatra by Shaw. So it's really the, the story of Cleopatra all summer from a couple of different viewpoints, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you either really like the Roman plays or you don't, and our listeners by now know how we both feel about (laughs) Antony and Cleopatra. Um, Yeah. Well, and I hate Shaw, too, so... Oh, well, that's too bad. I really enjoy Shaw. Sure. Um, I I like his Irishness. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You would. So I do. (laughs) That's like the theme of this episode. Yeah, Ari, you would. Okay. Damn. Um, But what's exciting is that Mm -hmm. in the fall, in what we're calling our fall repertory season now, we're rolling in a fourth show, which this year is going to be a a world premiere musical Mm -hmm. uh, called The Willard Suitcases. Yeah, it's fucking cool. Yeah, tell me why it's cool. The inspiration for this musical is a photography project that an artist did a few years back where he got access to a decommissioned asylum's collection of patient suitcases and photographed all of their belongings. So it's a sad but beautiful photography exhibit. Um, And I frankly kind of can't wait to see what uh, a theatrical project is that has yeah. used that as the as the ground like i i can't i i have no idea what it's gonna be but i'm i can't wait to see it yeah i think it's it's a cool thing to do in our space mm-hmm. you know knowing that we do all acoustic music mm-hmm. too so um, so yeah, I, I'm excited to see what that brings. Mm-hmm. Um, are we also going to drop the, uh, the tour? Yeah. 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 So the, the okay. tour, um, for the next year is Midsummer mm-hmm. and Cymbeline and an adaptation of the Grapes of Wrath for reasons we don't need to, that's fine. <laughs> I have, I have never seen an adaptation of the Grapes of Wrath, oh, so I will be to? interested to see it. I mean, I taught it for so long. Oh, did you? I did, yeah, because I taught huh. English 11 sure, for sure, sure. several years, um, so I always taught the Grapes of Wrath. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I'm not like, it's not like my favorite Steinbeck, but right. I'm always curious to see adaptations of anything, really, sure. so I'll, I'll see it. All right. You know. Um, but so the, the tour, aside from Grapes of Wrath, for reasons, uh, is doing a couple <laughs> cool things. So with Midsummer, they're going to have a 90-minute cut mm-hmm. and then like a full cut, which I guess is like a two-hour cut. Yeah, Probably. so it's a in the summer, anyway. it, yeah, in the summer festival, mm-hmm. the touring troupe is going to be contributing to that festival yeah. repertory um, with the ninety-minute. It's like family-friendly, mm-hmm. just like meant to be, you know, introductory. Get your feet wet with some fun Shakespeare ninety-minute cut of mm-hmm. Midsummer, and then I think there's a little more of an extended cut that they're actually going to take on tour. Is what it right. sounds like. Yeah, and that'll yeah. be June and July. Will they be in residence? Right. 
and right. then it'll go on the road. Okay. And then right. with Cymbeline, yeah. it is being rebranded and they're calling it Imogen. Which, if you listened to our Cymbeline 101 episode, we had mm-hmm. a conversation with Mia Gosling about this, mm-hmm. uh, about this very thing, because really the play is all about Imogen and not Cymbeline. Mm-hmm. So I find it, I find it interesting that it's mm-hmm. being retitled for this run. I know. I can't wait to hear what yeah. our good friend Mia uh, thinks about it. Okay, any other Shakes Mm-mm. Bubble gossip? It's been a quiet week. Yeah. Yeah. I can't think of anything. I'll have a lot of things to say next week. Because on Tuesday, I'm seeing a production of The Changeling. Oh, right. Yeah. And I will want to talk all about that. Exciting. Yeah. yeah. But I haven't seen it yet. That's not, it's not, not till right. next week. You gotta, you gotta come back next week for all of my unfiltered thoughts about The Changeling. Yes. Which also, here's my plug now, is for all of y'all to go back and listen to our Changeling episode so that when we get to the gossip next week, you understand what's happening. Yes. Excellent. Um, I don't think we have any corrections to make. I don't think so. Because we are flawless. Well, we are perfect what? We are perfect twats, that's for sure. Stop it. (laughs) All right, make your weird noise that is no longer a noise. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, when Aubrey starts making weird fucking noises, that it's dick bracket time. (laughs) Um, So last week, in one of the tightest races that we have ever had. It was. uh, Was Angelo from Measure for Measure up against the brothers from the Duchess of Malfi. And Mm -hmm. for a hot second, like until this morning, I thought that Angelo was going to walk away with it. Um, it was like 5149 and then it swung and I think it ended 5149 in the other camp. So the brothers Malfi are advancing into the final four. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, A good evenly matched matchup in those two. I think it really was hard for people to decide. Well, cause they're so different. It's the, the dickishness is right. Like you've got, well, we don't need to recap it, you know, but yeah. Y'all very know. different. Y'all People voted. were very upset with me for making them choose between yeah. these two particulars. And I was yeah. like, sorry, y'all. Well, I don't choose okay. the matchups. If uh if people were mad at you for that one, I know. There's gonna be some furniture moving up in here yep. for this next one because this final matchup of our Elite Eight, uh, so round three, is Tamberlane versus Barabbas. Yeah. That's right. I know. Tamberlane. Versus Barabbas. I know. Slave owner versus slave owner. Yep. Mass murderer versus mass murderer. Yep. I feel like I, I'm almost afraid that this particular matchup is coming up too soon. I am. I like. I. It's. I, I mean, I know. You can't delay it. I know, like, but I feel like this. This the, like they're both so bad. It feels yeah. like this is like the final matchup. Sure. Period. You know what sure. I mean? Yeah. I. Um, I do. I do wish. Yeah, that they were because that it does it does seem like these would be the final two. Yeah, because um, they're terrible. Yeah, yeah. So we should have put them on different sides of the bracket. Well, whatever. You <laughs> That's know. on us. It's. I mean, a little bit. I don't know how to make a bracket. I really. Know. I just we'll do better next time. And like the next time we bracket something. Yeah, and also uh, I just want to put it out there because we've been talking about um, we're going to SAA. Uh, in April and we've been talking Mm -hmm. about what we're going to do there. So for our listeners who might be like, Oh, this is cool. I'm going to be at SAA. Uh, we're going to let you guys 
sort of revote on the bracket. We've we've got a uh, an exciting activity planned um, that will take you in to that. And so if you don't like the matchups, you you can have your own say. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you leave the podcast more informed than when you started. Tune in next week for Hamlet 301. Yeah. And uh, my quote for this week is real short. I know thee not, old man. <laughs> my heart. It's my heart. Yeah. I'm just over here being callous. Wham it out. <laughs> callous bitch. If you liked this podcast, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. For show notes and other fun things, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Or you can drop us an email at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can find us on Instagram at hurlyburlyshakes. Or at hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. The Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shue. You can learn more about him at jonathanshue.com or find his albums on iTunes. All opinions you heard on this podcast are our own and are not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study. Also, my window is open and let's just pour one out for all of my neighbors listening to me bitch about Morton. I know. They're going to think uh, Morton is like your ex-boyfriend or something. Well. <laughs> like that bastard Morton. I would never <laughs> date Morton. Let's, I have, I have standards, Aubrey. I mean, okay. Principal Fuck characters off. only. Principal characters only. No walk-ons for you. No walk-ons for me. <laughs> <laughs>